What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Michael Sonnenstein is the managing director at Grayscale Investments, the largest digital currency asset manager in the world. In this role, Michael oversees the daily operations and growth of the business, and it's more than $4 billion in assets under management. In this conversation, we discuss Grayscale's Q2 results, where the capital inflows are coming from, why investors are flocking to digital assets, how Grayscale thinks about the premiums, and whether Grayscale will eventually own all of the Bitcoin being mined. I really enjoyed this conversation with Michael as always, and I hope you enjoy it as well. Before we get into the episode though, I wanna quickly talk about our sponsors. The first is Trends from The Hustle. You guys know my rules of business. Build shit people want, never give up, avoid assholes, question assumptions, learn new ideas, and always reward ambition. There's one community that makes it easier to do this than anywhere else. That community is called Trends. Trends teaches you how to build shit people want by giving you case studies, industry deep dives, and first looks at emerging market opportunities. They teach you to never give up because they have formed a special community of thousands of entrepreneurs who help each other every step of the way. You avoid the assholes because the community actually cares about you and your business. Trends will help you question assumptions by providing access to databases of thousands of real businesses' financials so you know the true numbers for what it takes to succeed. And Trends is the best place to learn about up-and-coming market opportunities. Every market, they send out a report of emerging markets and show you exactly how you can capitalize. Guess what? They also want to reward your and my ambition. That's why they're giving us two weeks of access for just $1. Sam, Adam, and the rest of the team at The Hustle love the podcast, and they want our listeners to join their community. So right now, you can get your first two weeks for just $1. That's right, $1. Go to trends.co slash to start your $1 two-week trial. T-R-E-N-D-S, T-R-E-N-D-S dot C-O slash pomp for $1 two-week trial. I'll see you on the inside. Our next sponsor is Crypto.com. They have been a longtime supporter of the podcast. They are an all-in-one platform that allows you to buy, sell, store, earn, loan, or invest crypto all from one place. You can join over 1 million users currently using the Crypto.com app. Go in the description and click on the link there, crypto.com. They've got an awesome URL. They're driving mass adoption. They continue to launch products, and it's an all-in-one platform where you can buy, sell, store, earn, loan, or invest crypto all from one place, crypto.com. All right, don't forget that I write a daily letter to over 50,000 investors about business technology and finance as well. I break down complex topics into easy to understand language while sharing my opinion on various aspects of each industry. You can subscribe at pompletter.com, pompletter.com. All right, let's get into this episode with Michael. I hope you enjoy it. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I've got Michael here with us. Uh, Thanks so much for doing this, man. Yeah, great to uh, chat. I think it's uh, it's been too long since the last time we sat down. You have been hard at work, uh, it appears like. So uh, for those that haven't been paying attention, Grayscale 
um, I think might have already been the largest uh, digital asset uh, asset manager, but uh, has continued to lengthen that lead, if you will. And now um, the latest numbers are $4 billion in assets. First, congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. And maybe I figured let's just start there. I think that's a kind of a headline number. People see, you know, $4 billion in assets, uh, about 2 billion of that, it sounds like came over the last 12 months. So maybe just walk us through from, you know, your seat uh, running this absolute beast of a company. Where's the money coming from and, and what's driving those investors to, uh, to seek out digital assets and the structure that you guys have? For sure. So well, first I just, you know, kind of introduce Grayscale for folks that, that don't know us. Um, we are the world's largest digital currency asset manager. Um, really, for us, it's been about providing access and exposure to the asset class. And so today we offer 10 different investment products um, where investors can gain exposure to either a single digital currency, um, in the case of some of our single asset products, um, or a basket of digital currencies in the case of our diversified fund, uh, Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund. And I really think for Grayscale, it's really been about not trying to reinvent the wheel. We've been taking our cues from the incumbent asset managers, really trying to find the best service providers we can. And again, the way that investors are used to getting exposure to either certain commodities or certain subsets of the market, they can actually use Grayscale to gain exposure to different digital currencies. And I'd say, you know, for, for most investors, you know, Grayscale has been around now since late 2013. And while it's been fantastic and rewarding to see it become orders of magnitude easier for investors to access digital currency directly, many investors still don't want to. They don't want to figure out where to buy digital currency, how to transfer it, store it, safekeep it. And the Grayscale family of products really is that all-in-one solution that looks, feels, and acts the same way investors have an experience buying you know, any other financial product that gives them exposure to a commodity or again, a subset of the market. Um, for us today, I'd say overwhelmingly our inflows um, into the products where we actually are directly raising assets is probably over 80% these days coming from institutional investors. So I'd say we're talking primarily about hedge funds, um, non-crypto hedge funds, um, but that also means that we serve a whole swatch of high net worth individuals, family offices, other types of institutions, financial advisors, RIAs. And then because some of the Grayscale products are also publicly quoted, um, we also serve really any investor that has access to the public markets where they can trade in Grayscale products in their brokerage accounts, IRA accounts, et cetera. So I think that um, one of the things I've seen a bunch of people kind of arguing back and forth on Twitter, which uh, always cracks me up. I'm like, hey, look, I'll just ask the guy when I have him uh, uh, on sure. the podcast is uh, this whole idea of like 80% comes from institutions, right? First of all, that's an incredibly impressive number. I think it serves as um, a great uh, data point in terms of the interest that's coming from those types of organizations. Sure. I think kind of the detraction uh, argument that I see on Twitter is like, oh, hedge funds aren't institutions. Now, I think you and I both know that hedge funds by definition are institutions. I think it's more of this thing where people kind of, they're talking about the endowments, the pensions, the foundations, the Wall Street banks, whatever, when they say institutions. So maybe just help talk through like one, how do you guys think of institutions? And then also two, um, if you can just break down like out of that 80% institutions, any ballpark numbers on like what's hedge funds versus what other organizations look like. Yeah, I think for us, we certainly believe hedge funds are institutions, right? You're talking, in, in our opinion, about professional investors 
um, who have underlying people that are trusting them to allocate their money um, according to a prescribed investment mandate. Uh, and they're being paid a fee to do so, um, and often case handsomely. And I think for a lot of those types of investors, moving into digital assets um, has been a leap. Um, it's a leap that a lot of them took probably starting about two, two and a half years ago. Um, but today, um, I think that the underlying investors are really giving them really all the wherewithal they need to invest in, in digital currencies on behalf of clients. And we're not just seeing this in the hedge fund community. Um, you know, we're fortunate to count other types of institutions or other types of professional investors as clients as well. Um, so that could be an endowment. Um, it could be a registered investment advisor. Um, it could be a, a private organization. Uh, it could be a, you know, a, a bank. Um, it, it really runs the gamut. But I would say overwhelmingly, it is going to be, when we talk about institutional flows, overwhelmingly hedge funds. And I think, Anthony, the reason that that is, is because when you're talking typically about a hedge fund, there are certainly decision makers at a hedge fund, but there's also going to be fewer decision makers than there would be when you're talking about going through the investment committee of an endowment or a pension or something like that. Um, and those organizations also just tend to move slower. So hedge funds tend to have a conviction in something. Um, they do their due diligence and, and they kind of move forward. Yeah. And so obviously to see that $2 billion over the last 12 months, give or take, uh, kind of inflow into all of the different funds that you have, one is impressive, but it's even more impressive when I think you look at it from uh, a good portion of that, call it four to five months, ends up being a global pandemic and an economic shock. Maybe talk a little bit just about like how does the macro changes help or hurt um, kind of the argument for institutions gaining exposure, and then other things that you may see as to why people are, are seeking out uh, this sure. exposure. Yeah, I mean, I certainly want to be sensitive and say, first of all, you know, on behalf of the entire team, um, you know, everyone globally is, is on our mind. We know it is a very challenging time for individuals, for families, for companies, um, you name it. Um, and so we certainly want to be conscientious of, um, you know, some of the uphill battles that a lot of folks are, are fighting amidst the environment. But if you, if you drill into what's been happening in the investment landscape in the, in the wake of that, um, there's been quite a bit of activity. So if you look back at 2019, um, before the pandemic hit, um, Grayscale had a record year. Um, we, we raised over $300 million last year, and um, we, we've never seen inflows like that before. Um, that momentum really carried itself into the first quarter of 2020 when we raised over half a billion dollars in just one quarter. And it really wasn't until the pandemic hit in, in late or mid-March of 2020, I believe, that we really started to see kind of what the fallout of that was going to be across different asset classes. And so, you know, definitely being long volatility was a winning trade in the first quarter. Um, but then what we saw is that that really subdued in the second quarter of 2020 and while a lot of risk assets sold off after the pandemic hit, we saw the resilience of the digital currency market um, be a lot more pronounced than it was for other asset classes, equities, bonds, et cetera. And so the second quarter of 2020 broke yet another record for Grayscale. Uh, we brought in over $900 million in the second quarter of 2020. And um, you know, I think we have to think about what's driving that. And to some extent, 
you know, one might think that economic uncertainty and not really knowing what the outlook is going to be when COVID may subside, when we may have a vaccine, may just be causing people to take risk off and, and be on the sidelines. But I think now what we're seeing is assets like Bitcoin um, and just digital currencies in general are being sought out by investors looking for uncorrelated return streams, you know, new sources of alpha. And again, that digital gold narrative is still really playing out. When things go bad, investors are looking historically to things like bonds and gold. But now that subset of, in, of investments you might choose uh, when things go bad includes assets like Bitcoin. And I think especially in the wake of how government intervention has you know, come into the fold in, in the wake of the pandemic, you've just seen this unlimited fiscal stimulus being injected into the financial system. And when you think about that, it's causing a lot of investors and a lot of the conversations we're having with investors to revisit some of the core attributes of digital currencies like Bitcoin that do in fact have a verifiable scarcity to the amount of Bitcoin that will ever be. And when you start having these conversations, investors really understand why not only the world has gone increasingly digital, but why a digital currency has now more than ever a role in the world we're living in and a role in the world that we're going to be living in moving forward. Yeah, and, and it's really interesting to think about Bitcoin as kind of the, the headline, right? That's what always uh, draws all the attention. That's what everyone writes about. But you guys offer a number of other assets. And so maybe talk a little bit about what are those other assets that you offer? And then how do you see the inflows being split up among those various assets? Sure. So we now have nine single currency products. Um, so we have products that are just solely and passively holding Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum, Ethereum Classic, Litecoin, XRP, uh, Stellar, uh, Horizon, and Zcash. I think I just hit all nine of them. Um, and then the Digital Large Cap Fund is our diversified offering, which holds a market cap weighted basket of digital currencies that gets reevaluated every quarter. Uh, today, that consists of Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, um, Bitcoin Cash, and XRP. And so, you know, when you think about the different assets um, that Grayscale products offer investors exposure to, you're really looking at that upper, you know, 70%, upper 75, upper 80% of the digital currency market today. And I'd say that for a lot of investors, not, you know, surprisingly, hopefully for you, Palm, but most investors' first foray into Grayscale products is still usually in Bitcoin. Um, and, and that's not going to surprise anyone listening to this either, right? Bitcoin has probably overcome the most adversity. It's probably where investors have spent the most time and there's the most resources available to them. But I would say it's interesting to know how much investors are diversifying um, away from Grayscale products. So I would say this quarter, um, the demand for products in Q2 outside of Bitcoin is up 35% quarter over quarter. Um, so we had record quarterly inflows into the Grayscale Ethereum Trust. And then we actually also saw um, some of the highest um, allocations into um, you know, the Grayscale Litecoin Trust uh, that we've had all year so far, um, as well as into the Grayscale Bitcoin Cash Trust um, since I think it was the second quarter of 2018. So investors are definitely looking at other products within, within the Grayscale family. And that's a theme that's been going on for a while and one we're monitoring closely. But investors not only see the diversification benefit of having digital currency exposure, but also having exposure to more than one digital currency. 
So I think most people in crypto will know almost everything that you just said in terms of the names of the assets. The one that may stick out to them is uh, Horizon. Talk a little bit about what that is and why you guys chose to incorporate that one. Sure. So um, Horizon is a privacy-preserving um, digital currency that was something that came onto our team's radar um, over the past couple of years. And I think it dovetails nicely with Grayscale already offering the Grayscale Zcash Trust. I think from our perspective and what conversations we have with investors, they believe and understand that the world um, and, and, and privacy with it um, is changing quite a bit. And we have seen there be quite a bit of demand for protocols that preserve uh, financial privacy. And we're not talking about financial privacy that lends itself to nefarious activity um, or anything you know, that, that would be untoward. We're talking about the ability for investors to be able to store value um, or transact in a way um, that can protect some of the details of those types of transactions. Um, Horizon is an asset, however, that kind of builds upon some of those foundational elements that you may see in Zcash, but also lends itself to other applications as well that maybe the code base of Zcash or other privacy-preserving digital assets don't necessarily lend themselves to. So um, it's a lesser known and probably a, a, certainly a smaller cap digital asset than some of the other products we offer, but nonetheless, thematically, is something that definitely has and I, we believe continues to resonate with investors. Got it. And, and then talk a little bit about uh, one of the things that I think investors uh, are scared of, but also uh, some investors are excited about is the premiums on uh, the various funds. So for those that don't know, uh, basically a premium is when the fund itself holds a certain amount of assets, let's say a million dollars worth of an asset, but it's actually trading at a value above that. So it could be 1.1, 1.2 million dollars. That delta between where it's trading and the actual asset value is a premium. At times, there's uh, certain vehicles you guys have that have you know almost no premium, right? Kind of five, ten percent type premiums, all the way up to I think the Ether Trust at one point uh, I saw had like an eight hundred percent premium. And so, kind of just talk a little bit about how you guys think of the premiums and, and across the different assets uh, as well. Sure. Yeah. Let, so let's step back for a minute. So you know, if if someone is an accredited investor, um, you know, they can buy any one of the Grayscale products directly from us at net asset value. Um, now, so far, um, four out of the 10 Grayscale products have been approved for a public quotation. So that's our Bitcoin product, um, the Ethereum product, Ethereum Classic product, as well as the Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund. And so it's important for me to reiterate here that Grayscale does not trade in, we're not market makers, we're not dictating the price at which any of the four products I just mentioned are trading in the public market on any given day. Uh, instead, these products are really driven by market demand and market sentiment. Um, and so I think today, the price at which these products trade in the market is really being driven by a couple of factors. I think one, there is today very, very, very few, if any, um, access products for digital currency. And so as an investor, if you're typically used to having a brokerage account, an IRA, whatever it may be, and you're used to accessing stocks, bonds, ETFs, mutual funds, et cetera, through that platform, well, now you can also get yourself digital currency exposure through any one of the Grayscale products that are, that are publicly traded. Um, and so there is kind of an ease of use, a liquidity, um, and then it also negates the need for investors to navigate 
buying, transferring, holding, storing, safekeeping, you know, digital currency directly. And I think one of the other big areas where we see a lot of uses of the Grayscale products is also in retirement accounts. So we do all, not only have investors who want to make these allocations for the medium to long term, but they want to do so in a tax efficient way. And so they look to deploy investments in Grayscale products inside IRAs and Roth IRAs and 401ks. And so we're not only facilitating that in our private placements, which we do for investors often, but also on the public market as well. And so again, if you have one of those types of accounts, but you're restricted to solely buying publicly listed equities or bonds or ETFs, um, well, then you really would have a very difficult time buying Bitcoin directly in that kind of account or buying Ethereum directly in that kind of account. So there again, um, you know, having the Grayscale product really is providing a value to investors and giving them the ability to get exposure, whereas they otherwise would not be able to. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and I guess as part of this, uh, maybe talk a little bit about where you see most of the inflows. Is it in the public markets or is it in those private placements? Yeah, so the inflows that we get are only into the private placements themselves. So investors who are accredited and who are buying the private placements from us, their liquidity option is selling into the public market after they've held their shares for a statutory uh, amount of time. In the case of Bitcoin, that's only six months because that is an SEC reporting company. In the case of some of our other products that are publicly quoted, that's actually a 12-month period. So inflows really only come into the, pri the private placement. On the secondary market, over time, what we've seen and what we believe we'll continue to see is that the volume and the number of shares in the public market will grow over time as more and more investors who bought on the primary side have their shares roll off into the secondary market. And obviously when people hear inflows, they think, okay, what about outflows? How do you think about outflows and, and how do you measure that, if at all? Sure, so we actually don't offer redemption programs in our products. So the Grayscale products um, you know, have these ongoing private placements where they're taking inflows and then the liquidity option is actually to move your shares out onto the public market after that holding period um, versus a traditional um, you know, creation redemption process where actually the share count could in theory be lowered and the underlying assets sold. Um, that is not in fact the case inside our products, but rather the, the assets raised just roll off into the secondary market and continue to be a part of the products. One of the things that uh, people have talked a lot about over the years is a Bitcoin ETF. Uh, you guys obviously have the closest thing to that. Uh, it's a little bit different structure, um, but it has served the purpose that an ETF could serve in terms of allowing people to get exposure in a liquid way in a various number of uh, investment mechanisms, whether it's in retirement dollars or not. What are you guys thinking about or, or kind of paying attention to in terms of that ETF? Uh, process and then uh, maybe a potential approval at some point. Sure. So we think a Bitcoin ETF is a matter of when, uh, not a matter of if. Um, I think, you know, the regulators have done a fantastic job of staying ahead of the curve on the digital currency asset class as a whole. Uh, Pomp, you know, you spend a lot of your time trying to stay on top of what's going on in the ecosystem. I do myself. At times, it almost seems untenable um, because of how fast the asset class is evolving and moving day to day, week by week. Um, we like to sometimes say, you know, um, a week in the digital currency world is like six months in the real world. 
Um, and, you know, I think with that being said, our regulators have recognized digital currency, Bitcoin in particular, in a lot of ways that lend a lot of validation to it and should really, in our opinion, not be deterrent for investors accessing the asset class. So, you know, we've gotten guidance from the IRS, we've gotten guidance from the SEC, we've gotten guidance from the CFTC. Um, you know, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is now an SEC reporting company. So they've taken a really proactive approach and there are in fact ways to work with regulators um, on the asset class within existing frameworks, but they're just not ready to approve an ETF yet. And I think that they've been pretty explicit about wanting to see certain dynamics within the market mature a little bit more. Things like, you know, maybe a more global order book for Bitcoin, maybe things like surveillance sharing agreements, um, maybe a little bit more regulation and oversight of the different marketplaces and venues where digital assets are being traded. And, you know, I think that that's something that certainly we as a firm and me as an individual, I'm excited to kind of see how the ecosystem continues to mature. I've been in the space now, you know, seven years, and it's amazing to see how much progress has been made. So I think, again, it's going to be a matter of, of when, not a matter of if. And investors just need to be patient. Um, but luckily, in the meantime, there's tons and tons of ways for investors to access digital currency directly um, through futures, through grayscale products, through all kinds of means um, in order to participate in the asset class now and not have to wait for an ETF. As an ETF eventually gets approved, right? We say kind of when, not if. Uh, what would be the potential impact on your business, or kind of what would you guys do differently uh, when that day comes? Sure. So, you know, I, I do think that it's worth noting that in uh, 2017, we were working to move the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust um, up to the New York Stock Exchange as an ETF. And while we made a lot of great progress with the SEC, we ultimately pulled out of that process, recognizing that they, again, just weren't ready for it. Um, and so I do think that there will be a time eventually where, um, you know, this product is able to hopefully one day, um, you know, be able to achieve that, that level of registration and change that product structure. And eventually we hope to be able to turn, you know, the entire product family into ETFs. But we're only, you know, 10, 12 years into the life cycle uh, of, the, of the asset class. And again, I think we just need to be patient. But, you know, we'll certainly be there when our regulators are ready for it and, uh, you know, try and stay on top of those conversations as much as we can. Most of the products that you have, or almost all the products you have, are what I would consider kind of straight down the fairway. You want exposure to X asset, uh, either directly or a basket of them. That's what you provide. Mm -hmm. uh, have you guys thought about or have any plans to create uh, vehicles where um, it may be an asset that then earns interest or any sort of kind of uh, bells and whistles that would be attached to not just be direct exposure to an asset, but, but kind of additional value? Sure. So... Um, number one, um, I would just say, you know, the Grayscale team, you know, myself included, everyone has really spent their time in financial services firms, banks, et cetera, um, before working at Grayscale. And so we're all, all too familiar with every different flavor of investment product, right? And so I'd say at any time, our team is maintaining, call it 20 to 30 different product ideas that we're ready to bring to market. Now, the question always remains and the difficulty that we have as a team is, where is it that we are seeing value um, and what's feasible for us to do? Um, and what do we think will resonate with investors versus what are investors telling us they want and what areas of the market do they want exposure to? So I may regret this later, Pomp, but 
if people ever have ideas for Grayscale products, feel free to tweet me at Sun and Shine. Um, I'd love to hear your, your, uh, your ideas that you have. Um, many of you already do that on a daily, if not multiple times a day basis. Um, and we certainly take any and all of those things under advisement. But um, what I can share for now is that the Grayscale product family will certainly not stop at the existing 10 products. Um, there are definitely more products to come from Grayscale. You know that you just opened the door for every uh, <laughs> a, 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 every shit coin in the world now thinks they're yeah. going to get a grayscale uh, vehicle. Yeah. Um, no, well, awesome. I will tell you, though, on that point, right, there are definitely certain things that we look for when structuring products, right? We're looking for a real, you know, reference rate and a, you know, a real discernible market that's accessible and regulated. Um, we're looking to make sure that there's sound custodial solutions around, you know, products uh, around certain digital assets that we can, in fact, go ahead and create a product around that digital asset. Um, you know, the list goes on and on, but I would just say there are some very practical implications that definitely need to be considered in the context of evaluating any digital asset for inclusion in a Grayscale product. So that brings us to one of the most asked questions that I got, which was, uh, does that mean Dogecoin is out after the uh, recent <laughs> TikTok-influenced uh, price increase? You know, um, I cannot say that we would ever or would not ever um, create a grayscale Dogecoin trust, um, but I myself, um, too, have been looking at uh, how Doge has been reacting in the wake of uh, all that's been happening with it on TikTok. That is the uh, the politically correct answer. Uh, I, I think it's absolutely incredible to watch something like that happen. Um, well, I think it goes to show you the strength of the of the digital currency community, right? Um, there are a lot of passionate folks, a lot of passionate voices, and um, you know we're seeing a ton of financial innovation coming around it. And what a better time than to to be working on it in the wake of everything going on in the world? Yeah. So as much as I'm joking about Dogecoin, it does bring kind of a, a more serious question, which is uh, around performance, right? So obviously, um, there are a number of investors that specifically want exposure to crypto assets because of past performance or, or belief in future performance. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a number of investors who buy into the qualitative type argument, right? Hey, there's lots of inflation coming. I want to hedge and do things like that. How do you guys think about the performance of the assets affecting either positively or negatively uh, inflows and kind of conversations with the institutions that you speak with? Sure. So I'd say, you know, we now have quite a few quarters of empirical data that are showing us that investors are tactically adding to their positions when they see a drawdown in price. Um, again, because our products carry when you buy the private placement, a statutory holding period, we're really serving a community of investors that are really allocating to digital currency for the medium to longer term. And so when they see a pullback in price as a result of any number of factors that may be affecting it, it's been really rewarding to see that um, they're viewing that as an opportunity versus a, we're scared, um, we wish we hadn't gotten in as early, we wish we were now first building our position. And so we work with a lot of institutions to over time help them average in um, to a, or you know, size up to a certain allocation that they're looking to make. And again, while a lot of the focus continues to be in a lot of the inflows are on assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum, it is worth noting that in the second quarter this year, um, you know, digital assets broadly outperformed you know, most indices. Um, and in particular, some of the assets that we provide products around, Zcash, Ethereum, and, and Stellar, 
um, were some of the top performers, right? Um, Zcash was up 72% um, in Q2, Ethereum up 62%, and, and I think Stellar um, on a similar footing. And so um, I think a lot of investors are paying attention to price movements and then also looking at portfolio construction. What does your portfolio look like when you make room for 50 basis points of digital currency or you know, 150 basis points of digital currency, um, and they backtest it. And they do see that this can really help build a more resilient portfolio. And that's undis undisputably something that is definitely resonating with investors. So there's a lot of investors who will say, I hear all of the um, kind of increase in price in a quarter, half a year, a year, whatever. But for example, in March, there was a 50% drawdown in a single day of Bitcoin. Um, maybe talk a little bit about kind of one, any stories from watching that happen, uh, mm -hmm. but then also two, you guys have a very unique um, kind of structure in that either one, the investors are in an illiquid vehicle, meaning that even though the asset is liquid, they can't sell their stake in, in the private fund. Or two is uh, most of that drawdown or kind of the most severe part of that drawdown happened after the stock market had closed, right? Mm -hmm. And so even if you held the liquid shares, uh, you were kind of hands tied till the morning. Uh, sure. So maybe just kind of talk through like one, any cool stories from that day? And then two, um, how the structure either helps or hurts investors in those types of situations. Sure. Well, I will say that seven years of working in the digital currency ecosystem, I have an iron stomach. I have been through so many days of not just 50% drawdowns, but even more than that. Um, and at times when you couldn't even point to any reason why digital currency might be moving or having a precipitous drop. Um, so I myself feel unfazed by, by those events, right? I certainly am somebody who is allocated to digital currency personally and for, you know, the long-term um, believe that, you know, we're still in the early innings of, you know, where this asset class can ultimately go. Um, when I think back to the, the big drawdown that we saw in March, um, I can tell you with certainty, there was not a single email or phone call from an investor that day to myself or anyone on our team saying, oh my God, I, I need to get out of this. I can't believe this asset class could do this um, in such a short period of time. Um, did we instead have conversations with investors around what may be driving some of that? Um, seeing how other risk assets or really pretty much almost any asset or investable area of the world kind of couldn't dodge their way out of this, this global liquidity crisis and massive deleveraging. Yeah, we were certainly having that conversation, but there was never a run for the hills because digital currency um, is taking a big dip. Um, again, instead, these are moments where investors view these things opportunistically um, and, you know, look to those kinds of moments to, again, really add to a position. Yeah, it's, it's um, very, very interesting. Um, one of the things that people have been talking about uh, a lot online, and uh, I, I joke and say it's back of the napkin math, only with people who, who may not be the best at math, is uh, <laughs> there's a rumor that Grayscale is buying up all the Bitcoin. <laughs> right. And, and, and uh, what really people are talking about is they're trying to back into how much Bitcoin is Grayscale accumulating, how much Bitcoin is being mined in a day, a week, a month, a quarter, whatever. Uh, and so this thought process of like, oh, my God, Grayscale is going to own all the Bitcoin, um, either out of fear or out of like, oh, if Grayscale owns all the Bitcoin, then, of course, the price has to go up because there's none for everybody else. Right. So maybe just kind of talk through like I'm sure you've seen that flying around on Twitter, like thoughts sure. and, and kind of any response there. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting calculation that back of the napkin calculation that some folks are doing, right? Um, you know, the 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 process that people or the calculation that people are undertaking is that um, particularly in the wake of the Bitcoin halving, um, which we experienced earlier this year, what they are saying is that the rate in which Bitcoin are going into the grayscale Bitcoin trust um, is going into the investment vehicle that we manage at a rate faster than new Bitcoin are coming online and um, becoming part of the circulating supply of Bitcoin. Now, what should you take away from that? You should not be taking away that Grayscale is buying up all the Bitcoin and there's going to be none left for you. What you should be taking away from that is what that should tell you about investment demand. Grayscale is an asset manager and we are trying to satisfy investors' appetite for exposure to digital currencies and in this case, exposure to Bitcoin. And so if the rate at which we are having to try to satisfy our investor demand is happening faster than new Bitcoin is coming online, then that should be an important indication to really anybody undertaking this, that demand is outstripping the new supply coming into the market. Um, so our inflows and our share creation has nothing to do with how many Bitcoin are coming online or coming into circulation, but should instead, again, be viewed as really a, a, a measure of demand, which is why on a quarterly basis, you know, we put out this asset raising report. Um, you know, this is why each quarter we try and detail out for investors, which are the products that, you know, achieve the most inflows, which are the investor types that were most active in the prior quarter. Um, are there any trends or are there any interesting data points to extrapolate for investors? Because ultimately, we're trying to give investors intelligent and actionable insights. And if this report being the largest asset manager in the space can do that, then it's really quickly quite become really the de facto sentiment indicator for investment demand for the asset class. So I think a lot of people would then say, okay, where does Grayscale get the Bitcoin or other assets that, uh, that they do when they're creating sure. the shares to actually fulfill that demand? Sure. So um, some of you may know, and, and Pomp, you may have spoken to him before, our sister firm um, is called Genesis. Um, their CEO is, is my friend and colleague, Mike Morrow. And so Genesis um, and Grayscale work very closely together. Genesis is an over-the-counter uh, digital currency trading business um, that also has a very robust lending and borrowing facility, um, as well as now a derivatives business. And because Genesis is a broker-dealer, um, we work exclusively with Genesis on sourcing digital currencies that go into all of the Grayscale products, right? For Grayscale, it's really important for us and to the investors we serve that we're doing everything as compliant as possible. And so working with a regulated entity, you know, a broker-dealer in this case, really allows us to do so. And so Genesis's counterparties are all either individuals, funds, holders, miners, companies, anybody um, who is dealing in digital assets but can pass all of the anti-money laundering, know your customer, all the background checks, et cetera, that any counterparty would need to be approved in order to trade with a broker-dealer. And so we work exclusively with them um, and you know, their counterparties um, are now providing a pretty robust pool of liquidity so that as investors are coming into the funds, we have ample ability to buy Bitcoin or the applicable digital asset in order to fulfill whatever demand is being had.
Got it. And, and I guess as um, as you go into other assets, so not just Bitcoin or Ether and kind of the large market caps, um, does that get harder? Does that get easier? Like, how, how do you think about uh, actually acquiring it? And so go to the extreme example, if you started a Dogecoin hmm. uh, vehicle, right, and, and it's got a smaller market cap, uh, and you need to go acquire a bunch, like what does that do to change the, the process or operationals? Uh, yeah, for you guys? so I think that actually dovetails nicely with a comment I made before, which is like, there are some, you know, operational hurdles that we need to make sure are achievable when we think about product creation. So if there is not going to be an, a liquid enough or accessible enough or compliant market for Genesis to be able to go out and source digital assets in, in order to satisfy the demand that investors may have for a given product we offer and inherently the underlying asset that that product's invested in, then that poses a big challenge for us um, and would be a roadblock to us being able to serve certain types of digital currencies inside our products. Um, it's also worth noting, though, that in some instances, we also have investors who already own digital currency um, and can facilitate creations of grayscale products using digital currency they already own. So it negates the need for Genesis to go out and source it, but rather those investors are coming to us with digital currency they already have, can instead invest it um, into the products, so they then end up owning shares rather than the digital currencies themselves. Um, and again, when those come through, because they're running through a broker-dealer, we're relying on partners like Chainalysis and Elliptic and all of the great blockchain surveillance and monitoring tools that are available to us to order in order to make sure that the coins we're taking into our products are in fact clean. Got it. I normally end each episode uh, asking the same two questions. We've already had the pleasure of talking about your uh, favorite book and uh, an alien. So I have two separate <laughs> ones uh, that are more grayscale specific kind of and looking in the future. The first is um, as you kind of evaluate the company today and as you move forward, what do you feel like is the company's greatest weakness or the thing that you want to spend the most time working on to improve over the next, call it 12 to 24 months? You know, you didn't prepare me for this, all right? <laughs> um, I'd say for us, um, an area that we're really investing heavily in um, over, call it the next year, uh, year plus, is going to be a lot more technology. Um, we are really wanting to make investors' experiences with us ever more tailored um, to the types of products that they're interested in um, and want to you know, make sure that people have you know, an even better experience with Grayscale. And I think along with that um, is also continuing to really invest in talent. Um, you know, we've been continuing to hire and expand the Grayscale team, and um, I think that we will also really continue to invest in people. But I wouldn't say people are a weakness at the moment, just to be clear. I love that answer. Didn't mean to put you on the spot. Um, and, and then I guess the second question is, um, you're already the largest digital currency asset manager uh, in the world. You've got $4 billion in assets, got a number of different vehicles in which people can invest. What is the goal or the mission at this point? Like, Where does Grayscale go? And if you kind of look out you know, 10 years plus from now, um, how big can this get? Or kind of what do you and, and the rest of the team aspire to build here? Yeah, I would say that for us, it's really about opening up exposure to the digital currency asset class. I think we all continue to believe that it is early days, that digital currencies, um, as a you know, looking at their market cap, is really 
almost nothing compared to the size of some of the markets they stand to disrupt. And so if we're successful um, in our mission, we are not only um, continuing to offer you know, best in class institutional grade solutions for investors to gain exposure to this nascent asset class, um, but we're also going to be a meaningful piece of helping to educate um, individuals and entities and institutions um, about the asset class and also being you know, good stewards of seeing the technology continue to grow and advance. Um, and so I think from our standpoint, we're constantly looking for opportunities to serve in those capacities and really grow the pie um, as a whole, uh, really for people everywhere. That's awesome. Where can people find you uh, online? And if they want to learn more about Grayscale or investing in any of the products, where can they go? Sure. So um, you can find me. I'm, I'm, I'm on Twitter um, and I'm a little scared after this, this chat with you, Pom, but um, you can find me at Sun and Shine at my last name on Twitter. Um, you can find Grayscale um, at grayscale.co. Uh, that's grayscale.co. Um, and there we have a whole host of great research reports, um, all kinds of um, primers on digital currencies. If you're looking to get a little smarter on a specific digital currency that you haven't maybe spent as much time on before. Um, and then certainly our team you know, likes to and will often post um, as much as we can, uh, various content we're putting out, webinars we're doing, really any way to engage with our team, um, certainly on Twitter. Um, so our Twitter handle for Grayscale is at Grayscale Invest. Um, and we uh, look forward to connecting with all of you there. Awesome, man. Michael, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. You guys are absolutely killing it. So uh, congrats on all these success uh, and we'll keep cheering for you, but uh, we'll do it again in the future. Awesome. Thanks, Pomp. This is great.